is Radio Three. Now, Annie Marie brings you more Hong Kong heritage. Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Hilton Chonglin gave that much to the public service of Hong Kong. He gained the unofficial title, the Mayor of Hong Kong. Sadly, I never got to interview him. But in this week's program, I talk with two writers who worked with Hilton Chonglin on his memoir in the years before he died in early 2022. He was born in 1922 in British Guyana and lived there. Until the age of nine, when he came to Hong Kong, he never saw himself narrowly as a ethnical Chinese. He saw himself as a global citizen. That's why this book talks about a Chinese in a global diaspora. He would serve on the Urban Council for 34 years, and was passionate about public education. Hilton delivered several long speeches, highlighting the need. For longer years of education, subsidize education for children in Hong Kong. Married to an opera singer, Hilton Chonglin was keen to increase art venues and opportunities for young people. And then the second thing he also asked during that session was, "Are we going to make it possible to have a professional symphony orchestra?" Writer and art historian Oliver Chow collaborated with journalist Gary Jiang, working with Hilton Chonglin in the final years of his life. The book was published last year, shortly after Hilton's death. His memoir is called "Hilton Chonglin: First Chinese Mayor of Hong Kong." One day of the blue, I received an email from him, and he wrote me and expressed his interests, asking. If I would like to take part in the book project that he was doing on his own life and career, that was 2018, I believe. It was more than a nice surprise, and I just jumped into it right away because it's such an honor to write about Hilton. The more I went through the sources for the book, the more I felt it was such an honor to take part in compiling what he had done in the 34 years of public service of his work in Hong Kong. Without his public service, without his 34 years, I think Hong Kong would not have been the way it is now. He had a lot to contribute. Hilton is a man of vision. He didn't just ask me to do it. He asked my former colleague at South China Morning Post, Gary Cheung, the political editor, to do the political chapters, and I do the arts culture chapters. But both of us have to do a few chapters on livelihood. Which Hilton had a lot to contribute. As a cultural historian myself, I have no problem putting the arts and culture chapters together. But I learned so much. I thought I had already known quite a lot. But when I actually look into the primary sources he provided, including many meeting minutes of the former Urban Council, I was so astonished by the depth and the things he covered、uh, in arts and culture. One example, 1962, City Hall was opened. This year's 60th anniversary. But little did I know, Hilton was asking more than just the launch of a venue. He asked for a lot of things that 
went along with the city hall. For example, in that year, in one of the questions at the urban council sessions, he asked, "Are we going to consider set up a, an arts council for Hong Kong?" This is an issue that we only see recently, the Culture and Tourism <laughs> Bureau. But in '62, he asked about that because he believed just a venue, a city hall, is not enough.、Mm. You have to have a lot of things that go with it. And then the second thing he also asked during that session was, "Are we going to make it possible to have a professional symphony orchestra? For example, what about a Hong Kong radio symphony orchestra? And we could go abroad to hire." The necessary musicians to make up with what the local orchestra didn't have, so we have a combined orchestra. Now that's 1962, and in 1974, when Hong Kong Field became professionalized, that's where his vision became materialized. In 1958-59, I believe he first raised about the necessity to have a planetarium, what is now Hong Kong. Space Museum. Yes. Oh, right. So, God, look at where his interests went. And then in 1961, he asked about when is Hong Kong going to have an aquarium. And then he even asked about、uh, the Aberdeen area, which is now the Hong Kong Ocean Park. And then、uh, in 66, 67 timeframe, he talked about when are we going to have a waterfront promenade. Hilton Cheonglin was absolutely a man of vision. So I'm talking with Oliver Chow about Hilton Cheonglin, who died recently, but collaborated with both Oliver and Gary Jang on producing、uh, a book about his life. And it's Hilton Cheonglin, first Chinese mayor of Hong Kong. Now I was fascinated to see that he actually grew up in Guyana. Yes, he was born in Guyana,、um, Georgetown, which was then under the British rule. He was born August six, nineteen twenty-two. He was born and raised there until he and his family moved to Hong Kong when he was nine. So his upbringing years were in Georgetown, and that is very critical for the man he became because he was born in a multi-racial environment, and when he was attending school. The two languages he was studying were English and Latin, and in his household he was the oldest of five siblings. But his mother was a member of the Church of England, and she didn't speak any Chinese. And his father was a Cantonese who went to Georgetown through Hong Kong. So that makes Hilton the second generation in Georgetown, and his father was a businessman running a lumber business, and he grew up in an atmosphere that made him a global citizen. For example, his nanny at home was an African, and at school he had a lot of friends from Portugal, India, and Africa, and Chinese were a minority there. In Guyana, in those days, there were only two thousand Chinese, and Hilton was one of them. So, according to the chapter he himself wrote in this book, he said racial discrimination is never an issue with him. He grew up with them, so that I think is very important for all the things he did in the future in Hong Kong, especially. He never saw himself narrowly as a Ethnical Chinese, he saw himself as a global citizen. That's why this book talks about a Chinese in the global diaspora 
in the 20th century. He saw himself as such. Gary Cheung, I'm delighted to talk with you. You've uh, been a veteran journalist in Hong Kong for many years and, and a writer. In terms of Hilton Chonglin, what's your connection to him? I have known Mr. Hilton Chonglin uh, for five years. At that time, he invited me and uh, my former colleague, Oliver, Oliver Chow, to work together for a memoir for him. We worked together for several years, but uh, he's glad that at the book finally uh, uh, I see the light. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's quite uh, nice to have his legacy out there, yeah. isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and the book uh, comprises uh, several portions, more than 17 chapters are actually penned by Hilton himself, uh, his recollection from his uh, early years uh, in childhoods uh, in uh, Guyana, in South America, uh, which was then a uh, British colony and his family is moved to Hong Kong, his years in LaSalle College in Hong Kong. And yeah, LaSalle, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. in Kowloon He's also spent several years in uh, mainland China at Guilin uh, during the Second World War. He really joined the SEMP as a reporter. Uh, oh, did he? South China yeah, Morning Post? South China Morning Post. South China Morning Post. Actually, the monthly salary offered by SEMP, South China Morning Post was quite attractive at the time in 1946, yeah, $500 per month. <laughs> 500 Hong Kong dollars per month are quite uh, an attractive pay. Uh, but he chose to punch into business well, start his uh, trading company, and then uh, join young business people uh, chambers, and then uh, start his uh, public life, uh, public service uh, history. In 1954, he joined other public-spirited people to form Hong Kong Civic Association, one of the earliest uh, political organizations in Hong Kong. I think the highlight of the book is not our chapters, because our chapters are based on secondary sources, you know, his meeting minutes and newspaper clippings, but the man himself, the writing, and just read the first few chapters, of how he narrated his early life and, you know, the wartime activities that he had and also the post-war Hong Kong and particularly one chapter on his China tour with his wife in 1950. That's right before the Korean War that he was in China, which was already under the communist regime. Those are all first-hand accounts written by someone who was so well-versed and so articulate. And one really appreciates so much the things that he put down because this is all very valuable historical accounts. He comes here as a, as a child. Then if you can continue his, you know, a little bit about his education. Well, he arrived in Hong Kong when he was nine. And uh, his father was very serious about providing his children a good education. So on one hand, he was sent to school in St. Joseph College, which later became La Salle. In fact, he was the first batch of students when La Salle College was founded in 1932. And one of his classmates is um, O'Salas. You oh, know, wow, okay. The Olympic man. <laughs> the Olympic man, and also later on, uh, chairman of the Urban Council. And uh, Hilton was his uh, second in command. He was vice chairman. So the two actually did so much to turn Hong Kong into what it is now. But back to Hilton's uh, early days, he uh, was in La Salle, and La Salle at that time was a school that provided education for a lot of expatriate children, especially the Portuguese. Salas was a Portuguese born in Canton that, that came to Hong Kong. So 
all those years further cultivated Hilton's、uh, global perspective. He has a group of global children, so to speak, among his classmates, and that's where he he grew up with. At, at the same time, he took part in a lot of、uh, school activities. One was a choir. In one of the、uh, clippings in the South China Morning Post, dated 1937, Hilton's name appeared as a member of the Little Flowers Choir, singing at St. Teresa's Church on Prince Edward Road. When I show him the clip, he was so surprised. Oliver, where did you find this? I <laughs> said, "Well, I'm with the South China Morning Post at that time. This is our house、uh, clippings." So he was very delighted to to find that clip to. Really find his origin, you know, in his arts in such early years. He ended up marrying quite a singer, soprano, yeah, yeah, a soprano, yes. Yeah. After La Salle, he did not go to college. Good for him, I think. <laughs> and、uh, he joined a law firm, and he became a secretary there for two years. He learned all those legal proceedings. After that, he joined a Swiss watch company run by a Jewish family, and then he was a personal secretary to a Dutch. General Manager there talking about global citizenship is in the making, and he learned the import export basics. And then after that, he joined a national bank of New York, and then he learned all those financial things there as a clerk. And then came the war, and he and his family left Hong Kong when Japanese took over. They went to、uh, Southwest China. They settled down in Guilin, and then that's where he、uh, joined the American consulate as a clerk there. And a lot of people wonder why Hilton spoke with a little American accent. That's where the reason is. Ah, okay. So he's in Hong Kong. That's interesting that he didn't go on to further education. Was that, do you think, an economic decision within that family? I think so. Because he's the oldest, isn't he?、Yeah. Exactly. But his father equipped them so well. Aside from going to regular school, his father arranged a senior Chinese scholar to go to their home every week to teach them Chinese classics. That might explain why his father was so eager to come back to to Hong Kong after such a successful career in Indiana, because he wanted his children to have a formal Chinese education. Now you're saying that he was in Southwest China in Guilin during the Sino-Japanese War. Then he he returns to Hong Kong at the end of the war. Yes, in fact, during the Guilin years, he was with the American consulate,、mm. and one of the consuls studied Mandarin with a young Chinese by the name Pauline Chow. And、um, <laughs> Pauline Chow became Mrs. Zhang Lin. Of course, we all know.、Uh, in fact, Pauline Chow, who was born in Beijing and came to Hong Kong before the war. And one of、uh, the famous things that she did was to join the Wuhan Songsters. The Wuhan Songsters passed through Hong Kong on the way to the Southeast Asia to raise funds for the anti-war, you know, campaign. And、uh, Pauline joined that tour because she was such a good, you know, soprano. And then after a year and a half in Southeast Asia, the Songsters came back to Hong Kong, and Pauline continued to to sing in Hong Kong. And during the war, she was in Guilin, and that's where she met Hilton. Hilton was a very busy man,、mm. and especially in the early fifties, when he developed his career, he was a member of the Junior Chamber (JC) of Hong Kong, and then he was also、um, a member of the United Nations Association Hong Kong. So、uh, on those two roles, he had to travel all the time, plus his own business. So he had. 
little time at home. In fact, one of the chapters he wrote about how much he regretted he had to leave the whole family thing to his wife. Interesting that you know, in our one of our first meetings, Hilton asked me whether I knew about Pauline Child, the soprano. Well, as a music historian myself, of course I knew about Pauline Child. I even you know mentioned to him that in fact Pauline Child was the soprano. At the inaugural concert of the Hong Kong Oratorio Society in 1956, and Hilton was very impressed. And then he asked me to do one thing: Oliver, could you write about the Wuhan songsters? That's the only request verbally he asked me to do, and I did. It turned out to be a piece in the appendix because it's not part of Hilton Chongming's career, so we put it in the appendix. In fact, that is the only chapter Hilton read in his lifetime. And then he made only one amendment, and that is the date of his marriage with Pauline Chow. And and then he made the correction: Pauline Chow, Pauline Chong Lin. In terms of his public life, what did he contribute to Hong Kong? Actually, the Civic Association was quite a active and progressive association at the time, in 1950s and 1960s. It offered social service to residents in Hong Kong and called for something very interesting: the lifting of the monopoly on rice trade. After the Second World War, because after the Second World War, the Hong Kong government introduced a kind of、uh, monopoly of rice trade,、uh, under which several rice trader was given the license for the selling and stocking of rice、uh, in the city, which make the price of rice、uh, quite high. Yeah, and the supply is not so stable. So Hilton and his colleagues at the、uh, Civic Association advocate the lifting of the. Monopoly of rice trade. After some time, the government are、uh, hit their voices and abolish the monopoly and allow more rice traders to join the trade, and then gradually driving down the price of rice. Apart from that, several years after Hilton co-founded the Civic Association, he took part in the election of. Urban Council. Urban Council is a municipal body which was established in 1883 in Hong Kong. The Urban Council was responsible for provision of cultural, recreational services and cleaning services in Hong Kong Island and Kowloon. It was the only partially elected. Body until 1980s. The Urban Council was initially called a sanitary board. How、oh, was its original term back yeah, what, in the 1880s?、Yeah. Uh, it means、uh, the term itself means that、uh, it was responsible for、uh, provision of hygiene service. So the、uh, Urban Council was responsible for coordinating and providing cleaning services, collection of rubbish in the town. Yeah. And after the Second World War,、uh, there are some limited scale of election, and、uh, Hilton Chong Nin、uh, was one of the first、uh, elected urban councillors.、Uh, Hilton was、uh, elected as a urban councillor in 1957. Yeah, in and he served in、uh, urban council until 1991. Yeah, he served in the council for 34 years.、Uh, oh, that's a very dedicated service. Yeah. And、uh, now Oliver was talking about how you've had access to his urban. Council minutes. Yes. So were you able to to get a lot of facts from that? 
Yeah, it's uh, covers uh, Hilton's speeches uh, in urban council, covering uh, his points, his views on constitutional reform, education, and housing. Yeah, uh, talking about constitutional reform, I can say Hilton was one of the first advocates of constitutional reform in Hong Kong. In 1950s, uh, he worked together with a prominent uh, liberal-minded barrister, Bernanke. Yeah, yeah Brooke Bernanke. Yeah, Brooke yeah. Bernanke, yeah. yeah. And uh, they complain about the lack of representation of ordinary citizens uh, in Hong Kong because uh, even for the urban council, the majority of seats were appointed, appointed by the colonial government uh, and the uh, elected members only formed the minority in 1950s and 1960s. Hilton strongly believed that ordinary people, lots of wealth people, uh, should have their voices heard uh, by the government. So Hilton Civic Association and Bernanke's uh, Reform Cup and other progressive associations at the time formed an alliance to fight for gradual political reform in Hong Kong. In 1960s, Hilton and Bernanke went to London to lobby uh, the British government to allow a faster pace of democracy in Hong Kong. And at that time, uh, their views were quite progressive by uh, the standard of that day. They managed to uh, have meeting with uh, foreign office officials responsible for Hong Kong affairs. Uh, but at that time, the British government had a strong reservation about introducing democracy in Hong Kong. And although they gave a polite answer to their suggestion, uh, but uh, based on the declassified British records I read uh, mm. over the years, uh, actually the British officials were quite dismissive of the pawns. Uh, they query the lead for uh, democratic reform in Hong Kong and they argue that most Hong Kong people were not that interested in democracy, in participation in, uh, in public affairs. Most Hong Kong people are only happy in making more money, earning a living, yeah, that sort of thing. I'm talking with veteran journalist Gary Jiang, who, yeah. along with Oliver Chow, collaborated with Hilton Chiongling to write the autobiography, come biography of Hilton Chiongling, first Chinese mayor of Hong Kong. So today, uh, Gary, thanks so much for joining me. We're talking about his work, you know, within the Urban Council. Also, as you said, the constitutional reform within the Urban Council. Also, he also very much pushed for education to be, what, more years of compulsory education? Yeah, I was very impressed uh, by Hilton's care for the well-being and education of uh, children from poor families uh, at the time. During his interview with me, uh, should be his last interview be before his passing, I interviewed him in 2019. He had a good memory of how he walked upstairs, walked up uh, maybe uh, seven or six uh, story, uh, hundreds of uh, uh, staircases uh, to the rooftop uh, to visit rooftop primary school in resettlement estates in Kowloon and he was determined he strongly believed there is a need to provide enough school places for children uh, so that uh, they can climb up the social ladder to improve uh, 
the fortune in later years. And one of his uh, key proposals uh, during his uh, Urban Council years is to fight for uh, compulsory education for children in Hong Kong. Yeah. Over the years, uh, in 1950s up to 1970s, he had been calling for introduction of uh, compulsory education. I saw this uh, from his uh, speeches in Urban Council, from the ministers in Urban Council. He had been talking about this, uh, I think, more than 10 times uh, during uh, Urban Council meeting. And then in 1979, when Osiris renewed his second term as chairman, he already had in mind Hilton would, would take it over as the next chairman because of age factor. He had a lot to contribute. Housing, even hawkers on the street. He contributed more than the, the physical aspect. He always looked at the hawker issue at a higher level, the humanitarian level. Could the enforcement people be more kind to the hawkers? The hawkers, they ran their life in the street. We should be kind to them. So that's why Early on, really early on in the 60s, he already talked about how about we put these hawkers in a compound where they could sell their food in a hygienic manner, air-conditioned. And this is what we, we see now, you know. When you look at Shen uh, Wan Civic Center, the, uh, the Sai Wan Ho Center, the Outhouse Kok Center, this is what, what you have right now. And in fact, those centers, a civic center that combined wet market and auditorium, even libraries, even indoor gymnasium. These were all Hilton's advocates back in the 60s. He already talked about that. He also saw a lot of young people in the street. He said, let's have more recreational facilities for them. And especially after the 1967 riots, you know, he said, we need to provide more recreational facilities for these young people, get them to learn and to engage them. Those are his contributions. And then in 1972, out of the blue, he advocated a Clean Hong Kong campaign. And he appeared and with, with a mob and all that, you know, sweeping <laughs> the streets. It's all documented in the book. You well know. done, yeah. Now, so with the 1972 Clean Hong Kong campaign, is that the same time as Arthur Hacker is doing his Lapsap Jung, or is that...? That's surely a, a, a part of it. Yes. And, and then the theme song and all that, Hilton was behind it. Right. Yeah. One can go on and on in the 70s, how Hilton, as a part of that Hong Kong takeoff, historical takeoff, because in 1973, uh, Urban Council gained the financial autonomy. For the first time in this almost 100 years history, Urban Council could allocate its own resources without going through the Hong Kong government. With the change, Sonny Osalis became the chairman and then vice chairman, Hilton Chonlin. The two old LaSalle boys went ahead to literally transform Hong Kong. Look at this series of openings of the arts sectors. 1973 was the first year of the Hong Kong Arts Festival. 1974 was the professional Hong Kong Philharmonic. 1976 was the first Asian Arts Festival. 1977, Hong Kong Chinese Orchestra and Hong Kong Repertory Theatre. 1979, Hong Kong Ballet. I can go on and on. This all took place after Urban Council gained its financial autonomy. And Hilton definitely had a big say in how to use the money. And arts and culture really were the two big notions under his watch. In 1981, 
Hilton Chonin became the first Chinese chairman of the Urban Council. When I mentioned that to Hilton, he immediately corrected me. Oliver is not just first Chinese chairman of the Urban Council, the first elected chairman of Urban Council since 1883. Yeah, I mean, this slew of, of, as you say, all of these major arts institutions opening in the 70s, that must have just completely changed the arts landscape in Hong Kong. How accessible was it for your man on the street, you know, any of these Hong Kong Chinese orchestra, the arts festival? Who was it aimed at? Well, those facilities were all aimed at the uh, up-and-coming new generation, the baby boomer generation in, in the 70s. Well, actually, it's not just arts and culture. Hong Kong at large were up and coming in the 70s. So when we put that into historical perspective, we could see how Hilton seized the moment and pushed forward all these things that he had. My thanks to Oliver Chow and Gary Jiang, talking there on the life of Hilton Chong Lin, who died last year at the start of 2022 at the age of 99. They worked together with Hilton in the final years of his life on his memoir, which is called Hilton Chonglin, First Chinese Mayor of Hong Kong, which is published by World Scientific. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>